show you a picture of something that you're probably familiar with. That's a treadmill. It's, a it's kind of a depressing picture, if you ask me. It's a forlorn corner of the house where you work really hard and you go nowhere, which is probably why many people have screens or uh, things to listen to on their bikes or their treadmills. Um, there's a lot of energy uh, spent on making it interesting because it's not interesting without something else along with it. For many people, probably most people, life is like a treadmill. There's a lot of energy spent. There's no forward motion. There's no real purpose. There's no true happiness. Even for many Christians, life can seem like a treadmill. How could that happen? How, how could that happen for, for a Christian in particular? Maybe you could go from enjoying God and his good gifts to enjoying just the gifts, which ends up being not really able to even lastingly enjoy those gifts. It's a happiness treadmill, if you will. You're constantly moving, but you're not any, getting any closer to real joy. It's an unending pursuit of happiness in the next thing, the next experience, the next purchase, the next game. Something new to be interesting, to bring a little bit of happiness. But that's really just a treadmill. For some, the Christian life is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. For other Christians even, it's a pursuit of the next spiritual experience, some fresh mountaintop experience. There was one New Testament book that was written to help recenter our lives on the very heart of Christianity itself. Yes, that's the book of Colossians that you're turned to right now. The center of Christianity is Christ himself. And Colossians does probably uh, one of the best jobs of focusing on that. In particular, the, the focus of Colossians is this. The preeminence and all-sufficiency of Christ. The center of Christianity is Christ himself. And this book was written to combat error that was prevalent back then, but it's also a very prevalent error today. There was an assortment of religions and ideas that were being marketed pretty convincingly, each of which, each version of which, ultimately said that Christ was not quite enough for salvation and for the rest of the Christian life. There were more special things to experience. There were more significant things and experiences in the Christian life than Christ himself. And really, that kind of false teaching speaks to what's already in our sinful hearts. False teaching wouldn't be compelling unless it had some level of truth and compelling nature to it. And what we find in our own sinful hearts is at the heart of the error that this book targets. That sinful tendency that all of us have is the desire for more than 
Christ. Whether that's in the stuff of life or even in religion, in your relationship with God, you can sometimes tend to look for more than Christ himself. And this book of Colossians targets that particular aspect of our fallen sinful nature by focusing so acutely on the preeminence and the all-sufficiency of Christ. Your turn there in your New Testament. The New Testament, just to zoom out a bit, we're going to look at an overview of this whole book. We're not going to read the whole book. That would take probably 15 to 20 minutes, honestly. It's just about four chapters. But the New Testament itself focuses on the person and work of Christ. If you're going to read straight through your New Testament, which is not a bad idea, I say, uh, uh, to understate it, the, the Gospels show us They give us an introduction to the history, the actual facts of Christ's life. It's a historical introduction to the person and work of Christ. As we get into the book of Acts, it's more of a historical proclamation. Christ is not on the scene physically, but he is being proclaimed throughout the book of Acts. It it describes the propagation of the message of the person and work of Christ. And when we get into the letters, or you could say the epistles, it's the interpretation of the person and work of Christ. And that's where we find ourselves in Colossians in particular. It's one of these letters which is interpreting. It's saying, this is, this is what was happening, and this is the so what. These are the implications of Christ. And then the end of the New Testament is the revelation, the consummation of all things, the consummation of the person and work of Christ. This New Testament overview um, looks at, the the one that we're going to look at this morning is in particular taken from the interpretation of the person and work of Christ. What kind of a book is this? We've just mentioned it. It's a letter. Paul is the author, the Apostle Paul, and uh, we could take time and argue for that because there are those out there that would argue against it. We're not going to take the time to do that. For one, verse one, we're told who wrote it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Near the end of the book, he mentions that he he signs the book in his own handwriting and he mentions that he is in chains. So that's probably telling us where he is when he is writing this. But Paul is the author. This book is one of four, quote, prison epistles. And they're prison epistles because they were written from prison. Um, The other three prison epistles, if you're interested, are the book of Ephesians, Philippians, and also the little letter to Philemon. When was this written? 60 AD. So just 30 years after the events of Christ's life consummated in his death on the cross, just 30 years later, very early in the life of the church. Where was it written? It was most likely written in Rome from prison. Maybe it was a a version of house arrest where he had to stay in his house, some sort of protection involved there. The background, why, why, why is a book like this even written? Are we reading someone else's mail? Like this is to the church at Colossae, not to us. Well, it is to us. We know that scripture is profitable for everything. Paul's third missionary journey, he stays in Ephesus. And he meets a guy named Epaphras, who's from Colossae. And Epaphras gets saved under Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. Well, Epaphras Epaphras goes back home to Colossae and a church is born. He brings with him the gospel that he has experienced that has changed his own life. 
And then later, after this church is born, there's, there's problems there in Colossae. And so he goes back to Paul, not uh, to Ephesus now. Paul is now in prison in Rome. And he goes back to Paul with these concerns that have started to crop up in the little town of Colossae. And so then, then Epaphras goes back to Colossae. Uh, he brings this letter that Paul has responded with. So there's, there's something going on in Colossae that Epaphras knows needs to be addressed. It's beyond his pay grade, if you will. He asks Paul, and so Paul writes this particular letter. It's, it's addressing some form of false teaching, which we'll see in a little bit. Where's Colossae? I mean, you, you hear Colossae, and it sounds like a Bible thing. It's somewhere over in the Mediterranean around there. Um, here's a little bit of a picture of uh, where Colossae is. You see the boot of Italy there above the Mediterranean Sea, uh, way off to the east. You have a zoom in there of Colossae. It's in the middle of land, but it's along a river, Apparently, and I'm reading from uh, a professor on this uh, topic, the diversity of population and exposure to the latest ideas via travelers on its major highway. It's by a river. There's a path there. Um, This was a lot of stuff going on. So that meant it brought all sorts of people and their religious and philosophical ideas Colossae was a place where many different religious and philosophical viewpoints thrived and probably mixed together. It was kind of like the internet nowadays. It's the information autobahn where all ideas are able to be put out there. Some of them are horrible, some of them are good, but it's all out there. All these ideas can mix. Really, our time is identical in this aspect to the way Colossae was. We have access to all number of versions of any number of religions. That's the way it was like in Colossae. Eventually, there was this highway that was moved over to Laodicea, if you can barely see that. So the, the major, it's like when the, the, inter, the interstate is built and it goes around your town, your town becomes a little smaller. But all the ideas that used to flow through that town stayed, and a lot of those people stayed. So the diversity remained, the religious diversity remained. So this church at Colossae was a very normal, not gargantuan local church. That's us. We're a very normal, not gargantuan local church. And we have access to all sorts of religious ideas, some of which, many of which, most of which are really bad. And so this letter of uh, by Paul was written to address these problems. Here's a modern day uh, picture of it there nestled um, in that area. So who is it written to? Well, we just read there in verse 2 of Colossians, it was written to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now what kind of believers are we talking about? Look down in verse 12 of, verse, uh, of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 12 Paul, in the middle of this uh, opening prayer, if you will, he says he's giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Look down in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, one translation says. 
Look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 5. What kinds of people are these? Chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Most likely, this was a church of predominantly Gentiles. So uh, the, the, some of those sins that were mentioned wouldn't have been as prevalent in a Jewish setting uh, where you had mostly Jews. And even the idea that they were alienated, in other words, they're outside of the family, the, the people of God, is mostly a Gentile audience here that is being written to, a non-Jewish audience. Now, what's the purpose of it? I've alluded to it. The purpose of this book, well, let's look in chapter 2 and verse 4. We'll, we'll let Paul show us what he is intending as his purpose of this book. Chapter 2 and verse 4 his goal was that they were not deceived by fine-sounding arguments. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Look down in verse 8. Verse 8, there was apparently some people that could threaten to take you captive by philosophy, an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 2. Apparently there were those that were passing judgment on them in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Down in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you because apparently there were those that were trying to do this. Disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Right? And and going on into Detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not fo- and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. This disqualifying, this asceticism was the idea of self-denial for the sake of self-righteousness, really. If I make life really hard on myself for a religious reason, God will like me more. Asceticism. Worship of angels going on in detail about visions. That's very similar to to today, to today, isn't it? You can easily find those that are going to tout their spiritual experiences that they had. Things in the unseen world that have given them some sort of revelation. You won't believe it was so much better than any church experience you could ever imagine. I mean, God showed himself to me. You wouldn't believe what he said. There's things in the unseen world that are, that are giving a, a lot more interest than this, this book, the Bible. How similar to today. The nature of this false teaching, there may have been, as you read in verse 18, there's this reference to his sensual mind. There may have been an actual guy himself that the Colossians knew who he was, a guy claiming that he had spiritual insights about the unseen world and how to protect yourself from that. He's going in detail about visions. He's puffed up by his sensuous mind. Ultimately, It was a mix, a hash, if you will, of religions and ideas, all of which said that ultimately Christ wasn't enough. Because if you need these special experiences that are more interesting, more valid, if you need to do all these things going on in detail about, oh, you shouldn't drink this and you should drink that, food and festivals and moons and Sabbaths, 
Um, those are a shadow of the things to come, Paul says in verse 17. But you see how that's adding to Christ, either by religious observance or by religious experience. It was a mix of those ideas. There were things that were more special and significant in the Christian life by, than Christ himself. So the purpose of this book is to combat this false teaching, which is multifaceted, but the way that the, the, the false teaching is combated is by looking at Christ himself, by showing the preeminence, the, the, the all-importance of Christ, and the all-sufficiency of Christ. He is all you need. Amen. You don't need these other religious do's and don'ts. You don't need these other religious experiences that have no basis in Scripture. All you need, all you need to be sufficient is Christ himself. So what are some of the themes? If we were going to walk through the forest of Colossians, what are the kinds of trees that you would notice, the kinds of things, the themes in Colossians? Now, you can't, I'm, I'm not expecting you to, to read any of that. That's an overview of Colossians, all in one fell swoop, uh, which is one reason why I like looking at a physical Bible, especially these New Testament letters. Your mind's eye, uh, your, your eyes themselves can look at the whole book. You can get the whole grasp. Um, and I know that means, for some of you, that means a huge Bible to get the font the right size. So I understand, um, you know, the, the helpfulness of digital forms. But in one fell swoop, there's Colossians. What are some of the things that you know? You notice all the, it's hard to even see, all the yellow spots are all, the yellow, are all Christ, references to Christ. And all the green spots are the ins and withs and whoms, references to that. Okay, you don't have to take a picture of that. It won't do you any good. But all that to say, notice all the yellow sprinkled all throughout. And even in the middle of the book is a lot of the in and with and whom's. Okay, Christ is the first theme that you're going to notice as you go through this book. Now, you could say, well, yeah, I mean, any book of the Bible, you could say that about. But in particular, this is the case with Colossians. Look in verse 15 of chapter 1. And we won't take as much time here. Pastor Matt uh, took two Sundays, two Lord's Days, to focus on this um, back in December. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of, or the, fir the, most in, the, the one in priority over all, creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Do you see in verse 16 how he's already setting the foundation to say, you don't need these other unseen realities. He's, Christ is the one over the invisible, over the, the principalities of this world, the dominions, the things that we can't see. He's already setting the stage for that by telling you who Christ is over. He's God. We see that here in this passage. Christ is also, there's a lot of connections to Christ's relation to God the Father. Up in verse 3 of chapter 1, we thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 13, Christ is the Son the Father loves. The mystery of God in chapter 2, verse 2, is Christ. God's the one who, in verse 12 of chapter 2, raised him from the dead. There are, there are many references to God the Father and his relation to Christ. There's also references to Christ as central to the Christian life. Look at verse 4, right out of the gate of chapter 1. 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He and he alone is the one that you must have your faith in. Epaphras was the minister of Christ. Paul's ministry was all about Christ. Just before uh, the passage that Phil read in chapter 2, if you back up, Paul says that it is him, verse 28, that we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was Paul's goal for them and with, for all believers is that he would present them mature in Christ. For this he toiled, verse 21, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And in Christ, verse 3 of chapter 2, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So with that in mind, verse 7 of chapter 2, we are to walk in Christ, rooted and built up in Christ. Look at chapter 3 and verse 4. Christians are raised with Christ. This has happened to them. And they're hidden with Christ. He is our life, Paul says in verse 4. In verse 15, we're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And when we're singing, we're letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. One of the outgrowths of that is singing to each other, which is what we do as we gather together. Christ is central to the Christian life. He's related to God the Father. He is God himself. Another theme that we see, oh, I'll, I'll, here's a, this isn't nerding out for the sake of nerding out. This is, this is showing you Paul's progression of what he focuses on. In chapter 1, it's, it's loaded with references to Christ or Jesus or Lord. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, many references. Chapter 4 are less. In the, in the back row is the references to being in Christ. This is who Christ is, chapter 1, chapter 2, and this is who you're connected to if you're a Christian. You are in Christ. You're with Christ. You're in him. And so notice his focus. He, he front loads the doctrine about Christ, and then as you go through the book, you go to the so what of the doctrine, the, the application of it. Another focus in this book as we've alluded to, is the theme of world powers. Look in chapter, uh, oh, I already referenced this in chapter 1, verse 16. Christ is setting the stage to attack, if you will, the world powers. Verse 16, for by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, the things you can't see, the things you can't see, and he's specifically referencing those that are in kind of rule, uh, r- ruling kinds of roles, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, some of whom can be invisible and visible, all things were created through him and for him. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. Chapter 2 and verse 10. And you have been filled in him, referring to Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Down in verse 15, which we read, uh, no, we didn't read this. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And probably down in verse uh, 18, there's a reference to the worship of angels, which would be in the unseen realm, which Christ is saying, he's he's drawing attention to it to shut it down, to show how it's insufficient. It is unnecessary to the Christian life. 
You see how Paul is showing that Christ is over the visible and invisible powers. Those that are claiming spiritual authority, Paul says, based on the unseen, are false teachers. If Christ has spoken and he has, then you have all that you need to know from God. He will never contradict himself through other lesser unseen forces. World powers. A third theme that we see in this book is the theme of the church. Uh, It mentioned throughout this book is the body of Christ. Verse 18 of chapter 1, he is the head of the body, the church. That's a significant focus that Paul has for us. Verse 24 of chapter 1, he, uh, Paul said he was filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Chapter uh, 2, verse 19, the problem with this false teacher is that he was not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. The body is also in mind in chapter 3 and verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your, all of your, plural, hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's a lot of one another's mentioned in uh, chapter 3. So, yes, he was writing to the church at Colossae, but he's drawing attention to the fact that it's a body that has to work together with all of its ligaments and joints with which it is getting growth And if you have a body, there is a head. And he uses that head-body imagery a lot. A fourth uh, focus in this book is the word all. Now, is is saying that the theme, uh, one of the themes in Colossians is all, is that like saying one of the themes in Colossians is the word the, because it occurs a lot, or a, or an, no, it's actually, it's not like, a, in, in, it's not an insignificant article, it's a significant word. Look at the frequency compared to other books, even in the New Testament. The one, you can sort of read the, the bottom layer there saying what it is, Colossians tops the list of the mentions of all, 14 mentions of all in this book. If you're going to look at the book itself, all the purple is the all. And where does all the purple seem to, to concentrate most? At the beginning of the book, right? Which would make sense, because we're talking about Christ a lot at the beginning of the book. And Christ is over all. You compare him with everything else, and he's greater than that. He's more significant than that. Okay, and so by the by, by the chapters, here's just the the occurrences of it mentioned a bunch of times in chapter one and less and less as you go through. It's really heavy on the front end. Christ, in comparison, and we'll get to this in a little bit, the last theme, but on the theme of all, Christ in comparison to everything else. But remember the context of this false teaching. Christ is good. We're not going to say Christ is bad with this false teaching. Christ is good, but you need more. You need need to follow the religious observances. You need to have these special spiritual experiences. You need to give a lot of weight to those angelic visions that people are talking about. There are more important things, the false teaching would say. And so that's why we see all these references to all because Christ is over 
all those other things that you could even think of to bring to the table as saying that they're significant. It's Christ alone. He is over all the rest. And especially, look at, look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Such an all-encompassing statement here. In Him, in Christ, is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There, there's no other insider special information that we need. If somebody writes a book about going to heaven and coming back and telling you about it, don't waste your time. You don't need that. It would be rather it would be right for you to be skeptical about something like that. If you have Christ, Christ in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The, the smartest astrophysicist, which I had to Google what that even was, the smartest astrophysicist in the world, which is, I think, the study of like the celestial bodies and universal kinds of things, the things that that astrophysicist just can't quite figure out, he's got questions about, Christ already knows it. You could, the, the scientist could sit down with Christ and get all of his questions answered. The smallest, I guess the opposite of an astrophysicist, is that a molecular biologist? I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but on, on, on that tiny level, the things that the scientists that are at the forefront of all of that, the things that they're still trying to figure out, Christ knows the answer to that. In whom are hidden. I mean, he made it, didn't he? Isn't he the creator of it all? In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is smiling when he's looking at scientists trying to figure things out. Not necessarily skeptically, but maybe he smiles when they discover something new. Oh, well, finally they figure that one out. You know? He's known it all along. He's known it all along. Paul is saying that Christ is greater than all. Which then heightens the significance then of this last theme of being, the, of a believer being in Christ. The concept of a believer being in Christ has been described this way. If you're, if you're zooming out on the New Testament a little bit, it's like a building is being built. And uh, this is, if you're familiar with the Biltmore, one of uh, Vanderbilt's estates down in uh, North Carolina, this is, these are pictures of that being built. The quote, In the Gospels we have stood like men who watched the, gri- the rising of some great edifice and who grow familiar with the outlines and the details of its exterior aspect, we're seeing it slowly being built in the Gospels. But then as we progress, in the epistles, in these letters of the New Testament, we are actually within the building. The building's being built. We're getting closer. Sheltered by its roof, encompassed by its walls, we pass, as it were, from chamber to chamber, beholding the extent of its internal arrangements and the abundance of all things provided for our use. Because you're in Christ, that means this and it means that. And, and so you should think this way and you should live that way. And then, we are here in Christ Jesus. You're beckoned into that place. That is who you are. And that's what the New Testament letters do for us, is to see the, all the implications of who Christ was and the fact that you are in Christ. The most concentrated areas of this, I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, 
in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, he, he's made that argument kind of leading up to this point, right? And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul is saying, he leads up and says, this is all of who Christ is and you're in him. So what you have is what Christ has. He's showing the significance of that. Look at chapter 3, the first four verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Want them. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. If you are with Christ, if you are in Christ, then when Christ died, you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, then you also will appear with him. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see how central this is to Paul's argument? If Christ is preeminent over all, and you are in him, then you are complete. You need nothing else. You need no one else. You need no other deeper experience other than knowing God the Father through being in God the Son. A lot of times in, in, in helping a, a young believer, they've professed faith in Christ and we help them, sometimes the tendency can be to, to help them by making them do all the right things and not do all the, the wrong things. The good Christians do this, good Christians don't do that. When really Paul starts in a very different place. Paul starts with this. Christians are this. They are in Christ. He starts with their identity. He doesn't start with, now let's get back to law following. No, he says, you're a new person. You are in Christ now. And yes, that will have implications on your life, which he is actually rather specific about in this book as others. But he doesn't start with the do's and don'ts. He starts with who you are. And the, the who you are is in Christ. And that's why um, the, this, this Sunday school series is so important. If, if you don't understand union with Christ, you don't understand the very center of your identity. Who you are. What that actually means. This is, this is first base is understanding your connection with Christ and what that actually means. If you don't understand that, you're missing the heart of your identity as a Christian. And that's a, a much of what Paul focuses on in this letter to the Colossians. 
if you don't know Christ, then, then, then all of these realities, you, you can't really claim to be true for your life. You can't try to live uh, a morally upstanding life apart from the giver of the law himself, apart from Christ. If you don't know Christ, you're, you're, you're on the treadmill. In fact, God made it so that you would feel like you're on the treadmill. He made it so that y- you, would, you would be spending your life and always coming up empty and always not being able to add things up. I'm working really hard. I'm going to try this new endeavor. Maybe this will give me purpose in my life. God made it so that you wouldn't be able to feel fulfilled apart from Christ. He alone is your hope of a true, lasting life, of eternal life, of a true relationship with God. Maybe as a believer, have you maybe almost unknowingly, you didn't quite notice it, but you know it's true now that you, you have moved on from Christ to any one of a number of things, a thousand other things can take our distract can can distract us from Christ. It's a treadmill where you're really active, maybe you're doing a lot of the right things and you're not doing a lot of the wrong things and you feel like, yeah, see how active I am, but you're on a treadmill and you're actually not growing any closer to Christ. It's a treadmill. You're not actually getting closer to God. You're not actually getting more like Christ. The theme of this book is that Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient over all. He he is preeminent over all. And he is all sufficient for you. Would that be the case for you? As As an unbeliever, you're not in Christ. You have no hope of eternal life. You have no hope of relationship with God. Christ is the answer. Whatever, whatever YouTube video you think is, is, is speaking to your truth, if it doesn't have Christ in it, as presented in the scriptures, it will ultimately, again, lead you back to the treadmill. It will lead you back to emptiness. You will come up short. If you do have Christ and you are a believer, have you gotten away from the center of Christianity? Christ himself. He is sufficient for you. All the things that can distract you, all the good things that can distract you, don't let them distract you from Christ himself. Christ is preeminent over all, and he is all-sufficient for you. Let's pray.